in ranked choice voting, you get nearly 70% of voters got one of their top three choices elected. And that's incredible, especially when we consider right now, it's often 30% or 40% of people voted for them. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Imagine a world where candidates no longer need to pander to the extremes and where your vote can truly represent your values. Sounds like a dream, right? After I left the Republican Party, I spent a lot of my time as a strategist trying to make that dream a reality. I've been on the front line fighting to break the monopoly our two major parties have on the system and to bring genuine competition into our politics. So I've seen this fight up close. And you might be surprised to learn that dream reality is a little bit closer than you think. States like Alaska and Maine are already proving it's possible, and they're doing it with a reform called ranked choice voting. We've often touted ranked choice voting on the show as one of the top reforms that could reshape our political landscape. And that's because it has the potential to combat the incentives for political extremism and to fight the impact of gerrymandering. Yet the big question remains, why is this very clear solution still a subject of so much contentious debate? Today, we're going to dive deep into this reform, how it works, the way it's changing politics in states like Alaska and Maine, and what it could mean for other campaigns, and how it could help us rein in extremism. So I'm going to break all this down with Deb Otis. Deb is the director of research at FairVote, which is the nonpartisan organization that is one of the driving forces behind ranked choice voting. Deb has a decade of experience in research and analytics. In addition to her work on ranked choice voting, Deb's research also focuses on comparative electoral systems, political polarization, redistricting, the Electoral College, and election recounts. Deb, welcome to Politicology. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. In addition to your sort of canned bona fides there, is there anything you want to tell our listeners about who you are, how you come to this topic, your your perspective for approaching it before we dig in? Sure. Uh, I've been working on election reform for about eight years now. The first four of that was as a volunteer. Uh, my background is as a data analyst, but I got involved in a local campaign working for ranked choice voting. Did that for several years, and I'm really captivated by this issue. I think that ranked choice voting is is one of the many proposed reforms out there. But this one, to me, feels like the right mix of um, uh, achievable in the short term and having demonstrable positive impacts. And so, you know, I was working in the private sector prior to starting at FairVote. I made the career change, decided that I wanted to do this with my career. Uh, I never looked back. Amazing. Let's dive in here. So from a 30,000-foot view, why don't you break down what ranked choice voting is and how it functions? What's the, what's the simplest definition you can give to people who are approaching this and have heard the term but aren't exactly clear on what it means? Sure. Uh, ranked choice voting means that voters get to rank the candidates on the ballot in order of preference. Uh, that's it. The voter experience is simple. When you you go in, you get your ballot, you get to mark who is your first choice, who is your second choice, who's your third choice, and even more if there are more candidates coming. Um, ranking is always optional. If you only like one candidate or if you, know, you really don't want your vote to count for anyone else, it is totally okay to vote just for one the way you always have. But ranking gives voters more power. 
Uh, we sometimes compare ranked choice voting to an instant runoff. A lot of us have voted in runoff elections. They're in about 10 states and they're in a lot of our largest cities in this country. And it means you vote once and then the two finalists go face off in the second round. You have to show up again, like three or six weeks later. You know, the election's not on your mind anymore. Uh, turnout tends to drop hugely in these runoff elections. They do have one benefit. They get you a majority winner between those top two finalists. Ranked choice voting tries to emulate that. So if a candidate does not make it to the final round, you know, you eliminate a candidate with the fewest first choice votes, people who voted for that candidate, they're now voting in the runoff round for their second choice or, you know, their third choice, maybe if they've had two candidates get eliminated already. And so it, it uh, emulates this runoff election without making people show up a second time. You already marked on your ballot who is your second choice. And so I think one of the best things about this is it eliminates the concept of wasted votes. In our politics right now, voters get told, you know, if you vote for someone who's not one of the two front runners, you're basically throwing away your vote. Or maybe, you know, you're going to vote for someone who's going to play spoiler and only steal votes away from your own side. And so voters get asked to play strategist. Uh, campaigns get increasingly uh, polarized and negative when we're stuck in this uh, this choose one world. And ranked choice voting really brings us out of that um, only two choices, you know, cross your fingers and hope your vote counts mentality. So we should contrast this uh, just for the table set with what we currently have, which we refer to as um, a plurality vote or first past the post voting, which is um, essentially not guaranteed to give you a majority of votes. So I think this is one of the biggest differences and one of the most important differences you just articulated, which is with a ranked choice voting system, you have to earn the votes of a majority of voters, more than 50%. We do not have that now, as we've seen in uh, even presidential elections, the ability of third-party candidates to, quote unquote, spoil the election, right? We're now having a big discussion about this. Uh, with the no labels uh, presidential ticket potentially entering the fray, uh, which would effectively play a spoiler role um, because of this plurality voting system that we have. So what we're talking about is a major departure from that system that would require anybody who wins to have a majority of votes, right? Absolutely. It shouldn't that be the lowest bar. Um, we're trying to elect our leaders. They should have the support of at least half of us if they're going to take office and represent us. And so, yes, we need a system that gets us there. Our current system does not. Um, some of the worst offenders actually are primary elections. Think about uh, Congress. Most of the seats are safe and you've got incumbents who've been in there for decades that are never really challenged. But when you get an open seat, you might get 10 candidates running in a party primary because it's a safe seat for one party. These candidates know if I can just get out of my party primary, I'm guaranteed to get to, to win in November and go to Washington. So we got 10 candidates running. The winner gets only 30% support from their party primary. Now, this is not someone who has demonstrated broad support among the electorate. They've got 30% from within one party's base, and that's it. And they go on to represent the district. Um, Fair Vote produced a report last year called Fewest Votes Wins, which examined <laughs> some of these really egregious uh, plurality wins in primaries. Uh, and so this, this happens a lot across all levels of government. There are variations to ranked choice voting, which we might refer to as RCV from here forward, like instant runoff voting, proportional representation. Can you explain some of these and how they differ from one another? 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, ranked choice voting is an umbrella term. It, so there are a number of systems kind of underneath that term, as you mentioned. They are all systems where the voter experience is the same. You rank your candidates. And so they're all called ranked choice voting. But there's one version that elects a single winner. Um, that's the version that we're hearing a lot more about. Um, they're doing it in Maine and Alaska and 50 cities like New York City is doing this. Um, there's another version that elects multiple winners. Um, a lot of us vote in multi-winner contests, like for city councils and school boards and things like that. There's a version of ranked choice voting that does that. And it's a type of proportional representation. And so it, it's a system that I'm a huge fan of. It, it's only in place right now in about six cities. Uh, but Portland, Oregon is going to be the latest place to implement that. They just passed it by ballot question last fall. I'm really excited for this model. So they'll be electing their city council from uh, multi-winner districts. So instead of districts that just elect one, they're going to have four districts that elect three people each. And now why would we do this? Uh, there are a lot of good reasons. Um, in our country, we have a long history of using multi-member districts, uh, especially at the municipal level. Um, I think it can better represent people as long as you do it proportionally, which you would if you use ranked choice voting. Um, it, it can help us achieve multiracial democracy. You know, right now, we sometimes it feels like during the, the redistricting wars, the gerrymandering wars, um, if you, you build a district that's going to help um, one uh, members of one community achieve representation, then you're effectively taking a district away from another community. And no wonder these uh, uh, redistricting battles get so contentious. When you have multi-member districts, we can really have, say, a Republican and a Democrat both both representing the same set of constituents. Uh, you can have a person who's a candidate of choice of Black voters and a person supported by Latino voters representing the same district when those groups are kind of over the this threshold to elect. And so ranked choice for multi-winner elections is growing in popularity, but it's still a little bit behind where the single winner version is for now. But it, it's the version that I think is really, really transformative for our politics. There was a point in my life where I was a loyal foot soldier in the in the in the uh, contentious redistricting battles. Uh, I don't know if they told you this, but I drew the lines in Nevada in 2011, and then uh, was the expert witness in the litigation that ensued. We ultimately won, um, but I think uh, as intimately as I have um, become familiar with the redistricting process. Lots of people prefer the word gerrymandering, which to me is a sort of legally loaded term because of my background. But um, that gerrymandering is the root of all of our polarization problems. And I think that's not really accurate um, because of the difficulty of reforming that process, both from a constitutional perspective and uh, and really a technical perspective, achieving proportionality is is an exceedingly difficult thing to do because of the hierarchy of statutes that you're required to follow as you're drawing district boundaries. So um, you'll hear people often on social media complain about, well, if we just fix gerrymandering or even if the Republicans would just stop, you know, politically gerrymandering everything or if the Democrats would just stop. It's an inherently partisan process that you're never going to extract partisanship from. And so this is the reason I like ranked choice voting as a reform so much and why I've, I've said so so many times before is because I think it can mitigate the uh, negative consequences of, uh, of partisan gerrymandering um, by reducing the incentives to be an extreme candidate because you really don't 
Um, you really don't win if you can't build a coalition outside of that very narrow, for example, 30% that you mentioned in the last election. So from discouraging negative campaigning to minimizing strategic voting, can you talk a bit about how RCV promotes a more democratic and reflective representation? Absolutely. Uh, you know, these the campaign incentives change with ranked choice voting. Uh, you don't want to only appeal to one sliver of a base anymore. Uh, you need this majority support. You need broader appeal among the electorate. Uh, so you've got to talk to more voters or more uh, more civic groups, for example, uh, to get that majority support. You know that you might need some second choices or some third choices in order to cross that threshold. Uh, and so this leads to uh, more positive campaigning and uh, better incentives for campaigns to connect with voters uh, on positive issues rather than just tearing the other side down. And so there's a, there's a good amount of research showing that ranked choice voting campaigns really are uh, more positive and more issues focused. And I think this is a really good thing for voters. I think all of us want to see that. Um, and so, you know, that's one way in which it helps with the polarization. A second is using it in these party primaries can help advance a nominee who has broader support. Um, we've seen uh, uh, some parties struggle in the last couple of cycles when electing uh, extremists out of party primaries who then, you know, go on to to win the seat or in a lot of cases, not win the seat because the person did not have broad enough appeal. Uh, and so ranked choice voting helps the party put its best foot forward by identifying a candidate who's going to be really strong. Um, I would use, um, you know, examples from Maine and Virginia, both where their their governors were elected with ranked choice voting in party primaries. Um, so, you know, the Maine governor, Janet Mills, came out of a crowded primary her first cycle um, with ranked choice voting. She won majority support there and then went on to win. Uh, same thing happened in Virginia in 2021. Their uh, first time using ranked choice for their statewide nominations. Uh, and they had a crowded field, uh, it, it kind of a fractured field, candidates who spoke to, you know, different different wings of the party. Uh, but Glenn Youngkin emerged from that crowded field um, by earning a lot of first choice votes, votes, but he also needed second choices in order to win. Um, and then, you know, the party obviously did well, um, won the general election with that candidate uh, in 2021, kind of their first time sweeping statewide offices with this ranked choice voting ticket in over a decade. And to be sure, many of Glenn Youngkin's second vote voters were coming from previously more extreme candidates in that primary. Um, so if I, I want to make sure that we paint this picture well for listeners, that they understand sort of the mechanics of this. When, you, um, when you're an extreme candidate and you can only peel off maybe 15%, 20% of the, of the vote in an election because you're just so crazy, well, you're not going to win a plurality. You're not going to get to 50%. Um, and those, those second votes have to go somewhere. They're most likely to go to a less extreme candidate in the race. And so as those votes shift, you end up with much more um, moderate or palatable candidates, which is what we got in the form of Glenn Youngkin. So um, I just want to make sure we're painting this picture clearly for people and that they can follow along. This is a, uh, we like to call it... Um, uh, vegetables. When we when we dive into the weeds on these wonky topics, there's a lot of vegetables here. So uh, uh, I want to make sure that's clear for everybody. Um, well, I'd like to add another yeah. wonky stat Please. if I can there. Yeah. Um, in, in ranked choice voting, you get more voters who voted for the winning candidate 
even if it was their second choice or third choice. And, you know, you, you talk about how some of these voters for extreme candidates, they ended up having their ballot count for their second choice, who was maybe a more moderate candidate. Well, when that moderate goes on to win, you have a much larger pool of voters who, you know, they're looking up election results the next day. And they go, oh, yeah, that guy. I, di- I did vote for them. Oh, yeah, they were my second choice. And so in, in ranked choice voting races, um, you know, we've collected the data on these. Nearly 70 percent of voters got one of their top three choices elected. And that's incredible, especially when we consider right now it's often 30 percent or 40 percent of people voted for them. And so, you know, you get more than two thirds of voters giving an affirmative vote of support in favor of the winner. And then you've got these people kind of more engaged. They elected the winner. They're, you know, hopefully a more engaged citizen. And they're watching what that administration does because that was their horse. They backed that horse who won. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it reminds me of um, Wabs. I've I've offered this definition before on the show, but my favorite definition of politics comes from a guy named Rob Bell. And he says, really at its root, it's uh, politics is how we organize the shared parts of our lives together. And uh, this method of voting yields a more consensus-oriented way of making decisions together as an electorate, as opposed to uh, perhaps a majority of people uh, feeling left behind or not having voted for the ultimate victor. In this case, it's a it's a way of bringing as many people along as possible with the decision that the electorate has made. Let's talk about the impact on the political climate. And I'd love to talk about some specific examples because I think people will remember back in Alaska, uh, essentially Sarah Palin was kept out of Congress. Mary Peltola won thanks to ranked choice voting. Do you want to review that case and any others that um, will sort of put some meat on the bones for what we're talking about here? Sure. I think the Alaska example is a great one. You know, you mentioned the race where um, Mary Peltola won a House seat, Sarah Palin did not. There were two other statewide elections in Alaska with ranked choice voting. Um, and kind of, I think, looking at the three of those races altogether, I think, gives us a really good picture of what can happen and why in, in ranked choice elections. Um, so we'll talk about this um, Sarah Palin and Mary Peltola race for House. We'll talk about the Senate race where um, Lisa Murkowski won. And we'll talk about the governor's race. Um, and so in this House race, uh, this one got got contentious. And this was interesting. You know, we had... Um, they use a top four plus ranked choice voting system. So this this is different than what most other places are using. And they're the first, they're really a pioneer of this top four system. And so how it works in, in the primary election, um, the top four leaders go on to the general election. And then that's where you use ranked choice, just among those top four winners. And so this is is party neutral. You, you know, in this, this house race, uh, they had two Republicans who made it to the to the general election um, and and one Democrat, Mary Peltola, and there was a, there was a fourth candidate who ended up withdrawing. So this one was a three candidate race. And so the party and the candidates, I think, have very different incentives when you could potentially be facing members of your own party and members of other parties in the general election. Uh, and so Sarah Sarah Palin had another Republican on the ticket, um, and that was Republican Nick Begich. Plus, they were competing against a Democrat. And so um, I think this changes the the incentives for these candidates in terms of what issues are they talking about, which voters are they trying to reach. Um, since that election, we do know Sarah Palin, of course, lost. Um, and Sarah Palin has sort of made anti-ranked choice voting a key talking point um, for her and her allies ever since that election. And, you know, this is an interesting one. It 
it wasn't ranked choice voting, of course, that caused her to lose. Uh, Mary Peltola had the most first choice votes. And then she went on to win because she also got lots of second and thirds. It's not like this was some leapfrog situation. Yeah. The House race, these these Republicans uh, initially attacked each other a lot. And they they said, you know, don't vote, don't rank the other person, which, of course, is um, maybe a good way to get yourself elected. But it's not a great way to uh, make sure that your side gains representation. You know, a party member ideally would think, I wish it was me. But if it's not, let's hope it's another person from my party. Um, these two did not feel that way, uh, and they did not show that in their campaigning. Um, we we see other examples um, where where candidates have campaigned together and have said, "Oh, hey, you know, rank me first, and then I support this person, so rank them second. Um, that is not what happened among the, those two Republicans in Alaska. Uh, but we we've seen um, other good examples. Um, so that that was the House race. But I'd like to briefly touch on the Senate race, if that's okay, too. Please, yeah. So this is where Lisa Murkowski won re-election. Um, you know, she, of course, is known as one of the most moderate members um, in the Senate. Uh, and, you know, I think there are some parallels between Lisa Murkowski and Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney tried to buck her party uh, in some ways, and then she lost pretty badly in a party primary. Uh, she could not survive the uh, challenge from the right in a Republican primary. Lisa Murkowski was not facing a Republican primary. Lisa Murkowski faced the whole state. Uh, and so she won one of those top four seats in the initial primary. Uh, and there was, she did have a challenger from the right, a person named Kelly Chewbacca. Uh, in the general election, Lisa Murkowski went on to win uh, by several points. And so I think this is a case where Murkowski could have easily been sidelined by this challenge from the right, because she's someone who's tried to take a more moderate centrist position, which is not always popular with the party base, but it was really popular with Alaskans as a whole. When all Alaskans got to participate in this race, they picked Murkowski over the challenger. Can you just speak briefly to the argument or the messaging that they're using? Because when I looked at it very briefly, it was um, essentially that ranked choice voting is anti-democratic or to, something to that effect. And we're now in this paradigm where everybody across the political spectrum is claiming to be representing uh, democracy or fighting for democracy. And that word has become utterly useful, utterly useless now. What is the message of the anti-ranked choice voting lobby uh, campaign? What is it that they're trying to say to voters? What is their case that they're that they're trying to make? Well, they're trying to say that candidates are going to come out of nowhere and win and defeat the popular candidates, which is not what's happening. You know, it, it is not what happened to Sarah Palin nor Kelly Chewbacca. Um, these folks did not get the most first choice votes. And then they also did not get enough second and third choice votes. Right. These are not like leapfrog situations. Um, there were a few come from behind victories in Alaska. It, it happens about 10 percent of the time in ranked choice voting where the person who ends up winning is not the person who got the most first choice votes. Um, you could call it a come from behind or a leapfrog. Um, it happens about 10% of the time, but it, it, it happens, it tends to happen for a good reason. Yeah. You know, if there was some vote splitting among the, among top candidates. Um, As Mitch McConnell would happen. put it, uh, candidate quality has something to do with this. <laughs> I think so. I think it does. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, the message is that, you know, the, People that are kind of on the the stop the steal messaging have decided to lump ranked choice voting in with the uh, their other mm. demands. And so folks are saying now, you know, paper ballots, hand count, 
all single, all voting on the same day and no ranked choice voting as if these things are related when of course they're yeah. not. Uh, but it feels like there are, there are a couple of high profile voices out there like Sarah Palin who, ha- who are finding that they can sort of fundraise off of this issue. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, um, one of the reasons that they, uh, to the extent that they're successful is, um, how difficult it can be for ordinary voters to understand the systems um, and the proposed changes. So can you talk about how there's this perception among a lot of voters that ranked choice voting is really complicated? Uh, It's a complex system. And what we've seen in politics, especially on the campaign side, is that complexity can often be exploited for fear because it's different and it's unknown and you can really make it out to be whatever you want it to be. So I see that as a vulnerability to the reform space in general, specifically to ranked choice voting. Um, Even though it's really not that complicated, um, there's a vacuum of, I think, really good understanding among the electorate for what this is and why it actually serves you better. Can you speak to that problem? I think that's a a great point. You know, this is not very complicated for voters, but the talking point that this might be too complicated has really taken off. And it feels like a a bit of a disconnect from reality. You know, it's my job as research director at FairVote to analyze how ranked choice is going in the places that use it already. And we are just not seeing evidence that somehow voters can't figure out who their second choice is. You know, if you're going out for ice cream, they're out of your favorite flavor. You're not just going to go home hungry. You know what your backup choice is, right? <laughs> uh, you'd like your vote to count for your second ice cream flavor so you get a snack. Um, the same thing, of course, works for politics, um, especially in crowded fields. I think about presidential primaries. You might have a dozen candidates. Voters go into that knowing, well, yeah, you know, I, I like these three. I really hate these three. And I'd be fine with any of these folks in the middle. And voters understand this. Um, I think I, I you know, I, I've seen folks tend to maybe get cynical about their friends and neighbors. Um, I, I've done some canvassing for ranked choice voting and you, you talk with someone who hasn't heard of it before. They say, oh, that sounds like a really good idea, but I think this might be too confusing for the voters. Um, I was like, well, you know, I've been out here all day talking to voters and people seem to really like it. They go, well, I don't know. Like, what are people going to understand this? I just talked to all of your friends and neighbors. They get it. Why, why do you think they won't? Um, and, you know, I, I see this talking point as... Um, it's certainly cynical and I think it's a little disingenuous. Um, you know, ranked choice voting can challenge the status quo to some degree. Um, and so I think that folks who want to fight against it for that reason tend to be looking for other reasons why it might be a bad thing when this one just doesn't hold water. That's interesting because it reminds me of the tried and true polling technique, um, uh, that was used a lot during the marriage equality campaign days when you wanted to measure real public opinion around a very hot button issue, um, such as marriage equality, you would, uh, pose the question this way. Um, you wouldn't ask, do you support the right of same sex couples to get married? You would say, do you think your neighbors support the right of same sex couples to get married? And the answer to that question would give you a more accurate reflection of what the ultimate uh, sentiment was for the person answering it. Um, So I wonder if there's a little bit of um, some other kind of bias or some other kind of sort of uncertainty or unknown happening in the, in the psychology of the voters that you're 
talking about. I think that could be true. Uh, we also see folks don't have a good understanding of our choose one elections either, you know, in, in surveys that, that try mm. to understand what do people get and not get about elections. Ranked choice voting comes up with similar scores to the other methods that we already use. Mm. Um, you know, people don't get what are primaries and generals, like what are we doing? Uh, and so I think there's <laughs> always a place for more voter education mm. in our elections. Yeah. I think that's something that um, our governments and um, election administrators should be doing as part of every election kind of reminding people, this is what you're voting on. This is how you mark a ballot. This is why it matters. Um, and when places switch to ranked choice voting, they have to do that education as well. Yeah. Um, and I think there can sometimes be um, an upfront cost because you want to make voters feel empowered, make the people feel like uh, they, they know that they've marked their ballot correctly and they know how it's going to count. Um, and so the voter education costs do come up when you switch to ranked choice voting, but they should also be coming up when you don't make a switch. Yeah. So we've talked about, um, you know, the impact on the incentives for extreme candidates. Um, it also comes to mind, extremists are powerhouse fundraisers. Um, we talk about this on the show a lot and how most of the money donated in political campaigns comes from the, um, the edges the, or the extremes because of the nature of, uh, um, well, human psychology, really. Um, the, the, the most incendiary uh, messages often yield the most eyeballs and the most clicks and the most um, donations. But I wonder, you know, obviously, I think that would change under ranked choice voting because you'd have a lot, uh, a lot less incentive to campaign that way. But I'd love to get your thoughts on how... Um, Ranked choice voting, if if you know if we were successful in implementing it, you know, writ large, how might it change governance with the types of candidates that would ultimately win? Um, how do you think it would change how these candidates approach the the jobs, the the power that we're giving them? How do you see the impact working? Well, first of all, I don't think that elected officials would be so scared of doing bipartisan work anymore. Um, right now, you know, the reason they never cross the aisle is not because they think it's a bad policy. It's because they're being threatened with a primary challenge mm. uh, by a more extremist candidate. Uh, and so I think if, if we take away those possible uh, conflict points, you get more incentives to cross the aisle, create bipartisan, create smart policy. Um, I, I think Alaska is a good example of this. You know, they, they've always had a bit more bipartisanship in their state legislature than the rest of the states, mm. uh, which is a great thing. And I think ranked choice voting has only magnified that. You know, they had a legislative session with um, uh, showing the, uh, a budget deal that shows how the system is working. because It's a compromise deal. And it was a really productive legislative session with folks who came out of ranked choice voting elections and know that they're going to another ranked choice mm. voting election. So they need to have broader appeal, not just within one party base. Um, we also see this from folks elected from Maine that uses ranked choice voting in general elections and in party primaries. Um, we have uh, some pretty moderate candidates coming out of Maine as well, uh, like Jared Golden from the 2nd Congressional District. He's a Democrat. He's rated as one of the most centrist Democrats because he knows mm -hmm. he needs to win a majority not just one sliver of voters. So a ranked choice voting system, it is this positive feedback loop. You're gonna you're gonna win your campaign if you can appeal to a broad base of voters. Then once you're in office, 
you want to keep having that appeal because mm-hmm. you know in your next campaign, it's ranked choice voting again, and you need the majority of voters to like you. So that's how you have to win. That's how you have to govern. That's how you have to campaign. And that's how it should be. Let's talk a little bit more about um, specific examples. We've talked about Alaska and Maine. Um, I want to talk about it in the primary process. I know you mentioned Virginia. I saw that you had written something about that last year. Um, Also, New York City now uses uh, ranked choice voting within their primary system. And I believe that is the system that produced Eric Adams. Can you talk about uh, about how that process played out? And also, um, if you have any sense of what Democratic primary voters think about that system now, because I know there are a lot of them who are not so happy with Eric Adams. Um, yeah, so ranked choice voting in party primaries is one of the, the areas I'm most interested in as a growth area, um, because this is a place where I think political parties are just effectively leaving money on the table. They are not adopting this method and they're advancing some wacko nominees in some cases. Uh, and so they can do a much better job by looking for that candidate who really has stronger appeal within the party. And so, yes, New York City did this. Um, this Their first cycle with it was when they elected Mayor Eric Adams. Um, and our polling has shown that um, folks in New York City are still excited and want to keep ranked choice voting. Um, this elected the most diverse city council in history. Uh, they have a majority women's city council for the first time, and it's been a productive city council session. Um, our Friends over at an organization called Represent Women just published a great report about um, these successes from this majority women city council and how they are getting things done in New York City. Um, so they just had their second election cycle with ranked choice voting. And from a national news cycle, it was a snooze fest, which is exactly what we want, <laughs> right? Ranked choice voting should become just how people vote. Folks, ranking equals voting. And it's, it shouldn't be dramatic and big when it, just because the ballots were ranked. And so we're seeing that in New York City and we're seeing that in the other places that have had it in place for over a decade. What are some of the drawbacks and limitations of ranked choice voting? If you were to um, offer up a sort of a steel man argument of the critics. Um, what are the strongest arguments against ranked choice voting and how would you deal with them? I think the, the biggest argument is just whether this is going to be uh, too much of a change for voters. Uh, you know, there is a strong status quo bias that exists in our elected officials and in us as voters. And so anything that challenges that, any change is going to be harder than just sticking with what you're already doing. So any reform effort is going to hit some walls. Uh, and so I think that is the biggest thing that we run into. Um, the second thing is uh, right now, an increased uh, polar political polarization of the pro and anti movements. Um, ever since the Alaska election, we are seeing um, it, it has become partisan in terms of who likes ranked choice and who doesn't. Uh, and I think that that is a, a, a vulnerability for our movement right now because ranked choice is good for everybody. You know, like Virginia Republicans are doing great with it. Utah Republicans have passed and expanded ranked choice voting for municipalities in their state. There is a lot to like here on both sides of the aisle. Uh, but when the opposition has become so polarized, um, this kind of threatens how much it, the movement can grow. And so FairVote is is working hard to uh, continue to demonstrate that this has benefits for everyone, uh, continuing to connect with conservative allies who do want to expand this in their states um, and ensure that we can kind of keep our 
uh, cross partisan bona fides, um, because I think that will that is what will make this reform lasting. Yeah, is it mostly for the same reasons and the same messaging being used in uh, different states? I know that um, Nevada uh, now has a growing opposition among Democrats uh, for ranked choice voting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, it it it. it um, it makes sense, I think, to most people why the MAGA candidates in Alaska might be organizing to defeat ranked choice voting. I think if you say, which is true, that top Democrats in Nevada are now organizing to oppose the initiative, that's a bit of a head scratcher. So help us understand that. Yeah, let, let's take a step back and, and refresh on kind of the different versions of ranked choice voting. So that'll help us understand what's going on in Nevada. Um, the Nevada campaign is for the same type of ranked choice that's in Alaska, but it's not the main version. So I'm going to kind of separate these into the Alaska bucket and the main bucket. The Alaska bucket has the um, nonpartisan jungle primaries. So this means there are no party primaries. Everybody runs together in primaries. And then in general elections, you get the top four or five candidates. And sometimes you're then competing against other members of your own party. Mm -hmm. And that can make it a little harder for parties to kind of know course. Where to put our fundraising? Do we treat our two nominee, two or three nominees equally, or do we pick a favorite? Um, that's very different than the main version where they kept party primaries, but they use ranked choice voting within those primaries. And then, you know, they use it again in the general for mm. the one nominee from each party, plus any independents or third parties. And so, you know, where parties have embraced this, like in New York City and Maine, it has kept that party primary model. In Nevada, they're doing the Alaska model. They're throwing out party primaries. And I, I think this can make it more challenging for parties to sort of uh, help shape the race, uh, choose their own nominee from within their ranks um, and sort of, you know, control maybe who ends up getting that party label to some degree. Mm. And so when we see party opposition in Nevada, I think it's because of the the type of ranked choice voting that is being advocated there. Mm. Okay. So uh, conceivably, Democrats in Nevada would be fine with the system if it weren't a jungle primary, but were self-contained within the democratic nominating process. I would suspect so, although I'm not certain. Sure. Okay. Uh, what are the other barriers to entry for implementing uh, ranked choice voting like in Alaska, el- you know, elsewhere in the country? What What's necessary to get this system off the ground in other states? Um, and how, how uh, resistant to it is the existing elections infrastructure? Um, in some places, we have a technological barrier. Um, the uh, tabulation machines that count ranked choice voting ballots are the same as the ones that are used for non-ranked choice elections. But if you're using machines that are older than 15 or 20 years old, then you probably don't have ranked choice compatibility. Um, luckily, most places are upgrading for other reasons. I mean, there are election security reasons to keep your machine to have the latest versions. Uh, places that are using um, legacy equipment tends to already have a plan for updating it. And so maybe you can time your ranked choice implementation with when you're updating your machines anyway. Um, but that has been a hurdle in some areas. Places that are using legacy machines and are not yet ready to upgrade, then they end up either needing to upgrade or needing to to do a hand count, which some people do. I mean, you know, ranked choice voting has been used in, in some places since the 1940s, they were definitely hand counting back then. It's possible, but it's um, it's not best practice the same way it's not in other elections. Uh, so the technological hurdle can slow things down. But of course, you know, time is on our side on that one. As, as more places continue to upgrade, 
there's a great resource from a group that we work closely with. Um, they're called the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center, and they really specialize in implementation issues. And so they have um, a series of assessments for every single state showing which counties already have RCV-compatible machines. And so those are available for anyone to look up. It's called RCV Maps. And so if anyone listening is getting involved in a campaign or you have these questions, um, that resource is available for free from the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Uh, and, you know, the, the outlook is rosy on these, these upgraded machines. There are just, you know, some places that maybe aren't quite ready just yet. Um, in terms of getting this passed, making it happen, uh, there are typically a couple of paths. You can do it through the legislature, so a city council or a state legislature. Uh, we've seen plenty of success with that. Or you can do it by ballot measure if your state allows those. Not every state does. Um, I would look to examples like um, the Oregon state legislature just passed. Uh, what they passed was a ballot referral. So they're saying, we want this ranked choice voting question to go before the voters. So it's like this team up. The legislature is kind of giving it a tentative thumbs up, but it's like, let's make the voters vote on this also. And we think that's a good model because now it's you know going into this ballot question with having survived the legislative vote. And there's a hearing with all this testimony um, about how the legislators made this decision that it was okay to proceed with this. Um, so there's a, a model of the legislature acting. Um, we've seen four other state legislatures pass or expand RCV this year. Um, so that's definitely a path, but it kind of depends on which state you're in. Um, if the ballot measure option is available to you in a city or a state, um, that is how the majority of RCV implementations have won so far. Uh, but it can be more expensive. So if you can find a champion on your city council or state legislature, go that route. It is cheaper and it could be more long lasting because you'll have champions in the legislature where you need them. Where you need them, as always. You uh, talked to before um, about the buy-in you get from voters when they can see uh, that even if their first choice didn't win, their second or third choice did. And that reminds me of how much we've talked about trust in elections. Um, you know, we've obviously, obviously spent a lot of time talking about the big lie around the 2020 election and uh, Republicans who still believe the election was stolen or they don't believe it, but they're saying that. Um, have you seen data showing that ranked choice voting could help combat the rising distrust in elections? Um, I have seen data that gave me confidence in elections, um, but in, in terms of, you know, widespread studies on this, um, no, I have not seen any of that research just yet, although I sure would like to. I would mm -hmm. like that to be an area of more research. I think um, voters who have used ranked choice voting, they like it, they understand it, they want to keep it, they prefer it to their prior voting method, mm -hmm. and they feel like it is secure and is delivering the right outcomes. But people who haven't done it yet, people who haven't held that ranked ballot and said, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. That's where the questions come from. Once people use it, they tend to really like it. Um, I will say from the, the data analyst perspective, there is really robust data that comes out of ranked choice voting elections. Uh, it's become uh, customary to release what's called a cast vote record. This is a digital record of how the candidates were ranked on every ballot. So it's basically, you know, a big old spreadsheet. Right. Ballot one ranked, you know, Sarah Pelt. <laughs> Sarah Palin, Mary Peltola, Nick Begich. Ballot two ranked people in a different order. And you can learn so much from these. Like, you know, you can examine candidate coalitions. You can learn about error rates. But the biggest thing you can learn is just confirming the result. I mean, this is available. This is open information for external validation and analysis that provides a greater degree of transparency than in non-ranked choice elections. 
Okay, let's start to wrap up here. I wonder, you know, what other states can learn from Alaska's fight, um, especially now with the backlash that we're seeing to RCV, how how they might go about mitigating that as they implement it for the first time. Um, what 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 are some things practically new states could do, new states to adopt could do to prevent that from happening, to bring everybody on board in the first place uh, and preserve it? Um, and any other lessons you think new states need to be aware of or that they might be able to plan for, um, given the lessons from these other states we've been talking about? Well, the first lesson from Alaska, I think, is that the system works. Um, I think that's maybe not quite the question you were asking, but the the people that won with this system are effective, doing an effective job in office. They are collaborating. They are passing good policy, and they chose not to repeal the system. Um, if a repeal comes, it will be, um, you know, from from outsiders, not from the folks who who won and and are getting to govern under this system. And so that's that's one thing to learn. Um, some other learning points, the election administration in Alaska was good. Um, they had to implement it a few months before they intended to, um, cause there, there was a, uh, a special election to fill a vacancy caused by the passing of their longtime, um, representative. And so they had to scramble to put this in place like four months sooner than they meant to. Uh, and of course they have a very rural state. So they did a lot of voter education. They did uh, community-centered education, like partnering with with groups to ensure the information got out there. Um, and you know, election administration is a little slow there because it's a rural state. Uh, but they did they did a good job uh, rolling this out for the first time. And so I, I think other places can learn from basically the playbook for implementing ranked choice voting. Now that it's been put into place in so many locations. It's not new. Like an election administrator won't be going out on a limb and trying something for the first time. There are established best practices for how to do this, like how ballot design resources, how to how to make the best ballot and the best ballot instructions, um, templates for voter education materials that are effective. Um, we definitely recommend spending on voter education in that first implementation cycle to make sure folks know not only that you're about to see a ranked ballot, but remember why why we do this. And yeah. that helps. Yeah. Uh, that gives voters confidence. It makes people excited. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so I think the, the key lesson is just people know how to do this already. And we can, we can watch what has already been done. We don't have to, uh, we're not creating new pathways here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if, uh, if people are listening to this and they're intrigued, they want to know more or they're sold and they, they want to help push for ranked choice voting in their states or their municipalities. Um, what would you tell them to do, even if it's on the municipal level? Um, what are some 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 actionable uh, takeaways here? And even if they want to just go see what a ranked choice ballot actually looks like, um, where would you where would you point them? Well, Fair Vote is the national resource on um, ranked choice voting information. So check out fairvote.org. You can find examples of what the ballot looks like. You can find a list of the places that use it already. Uh, you can find my stuff, all the research on how it's working in practice if you have any questions like that. And then when you're ready to get involved, and I very much encourage you to, you know, I, I mentioned I, I got started in this movement from volunteering with a local campaign uh, that was in Massachusetts. Um, we have a list on our website of all of the state and local groups that are working on this. So find one, send them an email, show up at a meeting. Um, and 
that the local groups are often the best way to uh, connect you to what are the action items in your city or your state right now. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. Um, Deb, is there anything we didn't touch on that you were hoping to hoping to mention? I think one point that I want to leave folks with is how exciting ranked choice is for presidential primaries. Mm. Uh, there were four states that did it last cycle um, for the Democratic presidential primary. And we're looking at at least that many doing it this year, um, including some doing it for the Republican primary, which is where we're getting the crowded field this year. And so I think this is a unique and exciting use because the, the presidential primaries definitely capture our national attention. And it's where we all know a lot about the candidates. And so we are all ready to rank them in our minds, whether we put it down on paper or not, we all, ha- we all know that ranking. Um, and so I'm really excited to see this um, used more for presidential primaries to help the parties uh, ensure every vote is counted and coalesce around a strong nominee. Okay, before I let you go, um, where can everybody find you on the internet? Um, yeah, I would just point, point folks towards fairvote.org. Okay. All right. Terrific. Deb, thanks so much. Thank you. It was great to be here. Lovely to have you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.